the National Archives podcast series, No Place for Ladies, the untold story of women in the Crimean War, presented by Helen Rappaport. The moving, tragic and in many ways pointless war got me very interested in the Victorian period. And of course it's a war full of mythology. I mean, for example, just here, the myth of Florence Nightingale there with the lamp on the Balaclava Heights. Well, of course, she was hardly ever in the Crimea. She made a couple of visits, but basically she was stuck at Scutari. There's William Howard Russell, the correspondent of the Times in his tent, slightly fanciful as well. But of course, the two big iconic things we think of when we talk of Crimean War are the charge of the Light Brigade, very potent emotive subject. And of course, another myth I have to dispel right from the start is it wasn't a gallant 600, according to Alfred Lord Tennyson. It was, in fact, 673 men who charged. And the other image, of course, if you say Crimean War, is, of course, Florence Nightingale, whose name, whether she liked it or not, was forever after attached to that conflict. Finally, and now, today, if we're going to be politically correct about it, we, of course, also have to include this woman, Mary Seacole, the Creole nurse from Jamaica, who made her own way to the Crimea to help the wounded and do her bit for queen and country. Now, what's so interesting about this war, to me as a historian, but I think just socially, it was a war of so many firsts, and one of the most extraordinary firsts, of course, it was the first account of war written by a black woman. And it still, I think, is pretty much unique in those terms. Because, of course, after the war, Mary Seacole published her wonderful adventures to get herself out of bankruptcy. And it sold very well. It was also, as well, the first war to be extensively photographed, famously by Roger Fenton. That's his photographic fan that he took round the Crimea. He wasn't the only photographer out there, of course. There was a man called Robertson from Constantinople and two naval rating photographers, but they sadly drowned in the hurricane. So it was the first real documentary record of war, although not corpses on the battlefield. It was the first war to benefit from frontline war reporting and the legendary reports sent back to the Times by William Howard Russell. It was the first war where the old muskets were replaced with new breech-loading Minier rifles, much more efficient weapons. The first war to introduce efficient army soup kitchens. The French chef Alexis Soy famously went out there. That's his sort of boiler that he invented to make soup, hot food to the troops after they had suffered the most appalling privations in the Crimean winter of 54 to 55. It was also, not many people realize this, the first war really to use trench siege warfare as, uh, you know, the kind of trench warfare we actually saw 60 years later in the First World War with that year-long siege of Sebastopol. And finally, the other important innovation after the war was, of course, it was the first time after that war that humanitarian aid was probably organized in the form of, during the war, official nurses, but also, very significantly, after the war, the development of the Red Cross, which was founded in 1859, and of course then, that in turn led straight directly into the 1864 Geneva Convention on Treatment of Prisoners and War Wounded. So, finally, the other big first 
was it was the first war in which women were properly organized as nurses to go out and serve the army on campaign. And by the same token, it was the last war in which women, ordinary rank and file wives, camp followers, were allowed to follow the army on campaign. So it is a really significant historical, social, military watershed. Now, of course, when the war broke out in February 1854, it was hugely, well, or rather the British involvement began in 1854, it was hugely popular war. The papers were absolutely full of jingoism and rebel rousing. You know, the attitude was, we're going to go and trounce those nasty Russians and teach them a lesson. You know, it was all going to be over by Christmas, that kind of attitude. And the Scots Guards, one of the Queen's favourite regiments, here they are parading in front of the royal family who were up on the balcony at Buckingham Palace and were seen off the very first troops to leave in February. But it was quite a different experience, of course, for the army wives. Now, at that time, the rank and file were discouraged, actually, from ever getting married because their commanding officers thought women got in the way and they certainly didn't want them trailing around with the army with lots of children. And they didn't even have married quarters. I mean, this is a slightly anachronistic image. This is Aldershot Barracks after the Crimean War when they made very sort of ropey married quarters huts. But as such, at the time, women all lived in these very crude barracks, the married women, with the men, the single men and the married men, all crammed in together. It was pretty awful army life for the wives. And when the men were called to the east, the old on-the-strength rules were still in operation, which meant, technically, a proportion of the army wives, the, the legally married wives, and a lot of the men never married their women, they had common-law wives, but the on-the-strength rules allowed six women for every company of 100 men to go out to the Crimea on campaign, or rather to go on campaign. They didn't specify that they didn't even know at that point they were going to the Crimea. Now, of course, the army started doing its sums and realized because they were sending an expeditionary force of about 25,000 men in the end, they couldn't possibly cope with all these women trailing along. So very quickly, that was reduced down to four women a company. And in order to prevent possible desertions, because a lot of men did not want to leave their wives and families behind, a lot of those women had followed their husbands to Canada, to India, to other parts of the empire. They were used, to, you know, there was a culture of staying with your men and being back up and support. So there was a, a high risk of, of people deserting or even women trying to get smuggled on the troop ships, which in fact did happen. So the night before, literally, the men were sent, there was a ballot and literally drawing short straw or, or black and white pebbles or whatever, but the, the decision who could go was made very a very short notice. And all over England, February, March, there were scenes of really heartbreaking farewells, wives and children on the quayside at Southampton, at Portsmouth, at Leith in Scotland, Liverpool, I think some sailed from uh, Northern Ireland, Irish ports as well. And the attitude of the army to taking women with them was very interesting because, as I said, they were technically allowed four women for every 100 men. But what actually happened in the end was that 
some commanding officers in certain regiments absolutely totally disapproved of taking women with them at all and reduced the numbers below that or just virtually refused to take any women but other regiments, the officers knew the value of the women. Women had always been a traditional backup in the army on campaign, you know, washing the shirts, unofficial nurses in the field, cooking, you know, doing the sort of daily duties that women did at that time. So a lot of officers wanted women with them and turned a blind eye. And what happened was, as I said, women got on board those troop ships by fair means and foul, smuggled on. One wonderful story of the wife of a rifleman who actually um, disguised herself in her husband's uniform, spare uniform, and cut her hair and managed to get herself on the ship. And when she was discovered, literally begged to be allowed to go. So there were these heartbreaking farewells, a very similar really to this image, which in fact was painted. It's called Eastward Ho, painted in 1857 when the troops went off to the Indian mutiny, but it's so close to the Crimean campaign that the scene would have been very, very close to that. But the minute those men left, we have an enormous social problem created in England. And it's one that the traditional military histories of the campaign completely overlook or just haven't noticed. What happened to all the, the army wives, the dependents, the children, the common-law wives left behind when the army went, went on campaign? There were no barracks for them to live in. There were no provisions whatsoever made for the wives and children. The minute the army left, the army schools were closed down. Even the women who'd been living legitimately in the barracks were thrown out. And it was really, really terrible. The number of destitute women now left abandoned. For example, the Rifle Brigade had been in Canada and they had 200 women that they'd married there, Canadian wives. Now, those women had no home parish to fall back on. They couldn't even apply for relief. And what happened was the people of Portsmouth actually rallied round and fundraised to take care of those women and their children because they would have been literally destitute. And the way the workhouse system worked then, of course, was you know, you, if you needed parish relief, you had to go back to your home parish. And there are stories of women walking with children up to 200 miles back to their home parishes, begging for some help, some support. It was really bad because what the army didn't do, it didn't make provision for the men to arrange for a proportion of their pay to be sent home to their wives and children until months into the campaign, six months later. So there was a huge public outcry about this and a huge amount of public philanthropy, fundraising, right from the start, went on in Britain to help the wives and the children long before the wounded started coming back, for whom there was, of course, even more fundraising. So what really tragically, I think, comes through when you look at the, the history of this campaign is that the army had these army wives that were taking on campaign with them, didn't organize them, didn't take provisions for them, of course, and didn't make proper use of the women in the backup lines on campaign. Well, 
as with all things in this war, no account was kept of the women, no records were kept how many women actually went, because as I said, there were so many discrepancies about how many each regiment took, and a lot, of course, got smuggled on and were never recorded. But we certainly think it's somewhere between 1,200 women and 750 women actually went on those troop ships heading out east. Now, of course, the other problem we have with the war is, although for me as a historian, it's one of the most brilliantly heartbreaking records of a campaign I've ever read because the letters, the journals, the diaries written in the Crimea are so powerful, so angry, so passionate about all the neglect and all the you know military mismanagement that went on. There is a wonderful archive, a wonderful archive material. And in fact, I'll come on to one aspect of it that is actually here at Kew. But of course, the women, the rank and file, the ordinary soldiers, most of them were illiterate. So they didn't keep diaries. They didn't send letters home. So we have only a, a, a small oral history of what happened. But what there is is wonderful. It took a lot of winkling out when I was researching this book, but it is truly wonderful. And I found some heroic women. I'm sorry this is such poor quality, but this is taken from a newspaper obituary of Nell Butler of the 95th foot, typical stalwart wife who went all the way right through to the trenches in the Crimea. And a personal favorite, the wonderfully redoubtable Elizabeth Evans of the Fourth King's Own, proudly wearing her dead husband's medals there. Now, when it comes to sailing, of course, where were the women on the ship? Well, the men luckily had reasonable accommodation up on the troop decks. They had in the main hammocks to sleep in. The women were shoved right down in the orlop, which is just above the bilges. Now, the orlop had no windows. It had no ventilation. Those women were shoved down there, virtually locked down there, in this dark, airless, cramped orlop, without very very primitive sanitation, I should imagine, no fresh air. And of course, the minute they left, they started falling sick with seasickness, with food poisoning, all sorts of things. And of course, the other unknown quantity, the obvious thing that comes through, interestingly on this campaign, is that many were already pregnant. And, you know, they were giving birth down in the Orlop. So it was absolute hell for those women. On top of which, there they are down in the dark. They don't even know where they're going. So let's take a look because certainly when, when the troops got on the ships in the main, all they knew was they were going to the east, somewhere towards the Balkans, which is where the original initial fighting had taken place between the Turks and the Russians there. But they did know that they were going to go down through the Straits of Gibraltar, and the plan was the army privately had decided that they were going to dump the women at Malta and send them all home from there. They weren't going to take the women any further. But, of course, by the time they got to Malta anyway, a lot of the women, this is between four, four to ten days at sea, but it depended on the weather. By the time they got to Malta, quite a lot of women were already so ill, so frightened, that they begged to be sent home. So some of the women got off at Malta, but the tougher ones went on from Malta round and up to the Dardanelles. Now, here was another major important stopping off point, which was, of course, at Gallipoli. Now, we've heard about Gallipoli in the First World War, but in the Crimean War, that was another big staging post where the British 
um, fleet met up with their Turkish allies. And again, the plan was, well, the women they hadn't got rid of at Malta, where they're going to dump them at Gallipoli. And of course, by the time they got to Gallipoli, not just the women were falling sick and dying, the men were too. Uh, conditions on the ships were pretty terrible. And a lot of the women and the sick were just left there, abandoned, when the orders came to carry on up the Dardanelles to the Bosporus. And so it, there are some wonderful accounts by a woman called Marianne Young, who was the wife of a surgeon in one of the regiments, talking about the women being left like sheep on the Turkish hills, totally abandoned. But of course, at Gallipoli, uh, uh, we do get an injection of humor into the story, which is the advent of the wonderful French cantiniers. Now, when the Brits arrived there, they were absolutely, well, gobsmacked to see that the French had proper organized women in uniform attached to their regiments. The cantiniers were sort of the successor to the earlier 18th century vivandier, com combination of a sutler and a sort of very amateur first aider. But they were terrific women. They were actually respected and paid and part of the official army, you know, part of the campaign. And of course, the British officers took one look at these women in their very snappy outfits. And then they looked at their own poor bedraggled women who'd already, you know, suffered two or three weeks at sea in their old poke bonnets and their big heavy skirts looking absolutely drab and exhausted. And there was much laughter made of the how sexy and attractive the cantineers, cantineers were. And they did get a reputation of being rather fast and loose. In the Crimea, and there's this one wonderful joke William Howard Russell repeated, and I just got to give you this. Two sailors walking up to the camp met a French vivandier, i.e. cantinier, riding down. Hello, Jack, says one. Is that what they call a she-dragoon? Oh, no, says the other. That's what they call their hors de combat. <laughs> and there were lots of jokes about the cantineers, but they were terrifically feisty women and saw their men through, right through, uh, in, with as much devotion and loyalty as the British women. Well, there was huge consternation in the ranks of the British Army seeing these women in trousers. And actually, um, you know, many officers were horrified, but one or two thought it was a jolly good idea. In fact, one of the British officers said he thought, well, you know, the British women should be bloomerized too. You know, it made, it made much more sense to have them better covered up the kind of terrain they were in. Anyway, the next place that the whole expeditionary force moves up to is Constantinople at the top of the Bosporus. And again, this really almost is the last staging point. A lot of women were dropped off here at the guards' camp at Scutari. This is outside Scutari Barracks, where Nightingale later arrived. Now, Interestingly, this is an incredibly rare photo showing women actually in, well, nearly in the Crimea. And there in the left-hand corner, a group of women in their impossibly unsuitable clothing to be out in the boiling heat of Constantinople. Anyway, a lot of the women were left here, as I said, and ended up really virtually having to turn to prostitution to survive because they were abandoned without any money. But one of the wonderful, colourful characters who comes through during this story is Lady Errol. Now, she was a feisty lady. She was the wife of one of the, the commander of the 60th Rifles. And she followed her husband on campaign. Now, the wives, officers' wives, of course, were allowed to go without question. Not many bothered, but she did. 
wearing her wonderful plumed hat and her tail coat and a brace of pistols in her belt and, you know, loyally riding her horse right up through the Crimea till her husband actually was wounded and invalided out. And there was this lovely story that in her tent at night, Lady Errol inadvertently entertained all the encamped troops because with the lantern on, there was this wonderful shadow play of her disrobing for bed. And uh, that was all the talk of the camp. Anyway, in May, May 1854, order finally comes through that all the Allied forces, the Turks, the French, the Brits, were to assemble at Varna in Bulgaria. It's a, a coastal resort in Bulgaria. So they all sail up and along to the coast of Bulgaria. Now, Varna looked beautiful. It looked like paradise. There was fruit hanging off every tree. It was warm. It was sunny. It was verdant. And all these hungry, tired men, already probably suffering from scurvy, what did they do? They headed for all the fruit trees, gorged themselves senseless, and of course all got very ill with stomach upsets. And now they had to hang around at Varna for a rather long time. And in the end, tragedy struck. Cholera came into the camp through the French troops. And it, it was appalling. 7,000 French soldiers died at Varna before they even got to the Crimea. But finally, 3rd of September, orders come for them to sail. This enormous fleet of 760 ships, just imagine that. I mean, there are descriptions from Russell of this forest of masts sailing across the Black Sea. And now they finally know where they're going. Now, the women on these ships, or still with the army, had no idea where Crimea was. You know, they thought they were going to the end of the world. But tragically, as that armed expeditionary force set sail, within two months, one-sixth of a British force of 25,000 men would be dead. And again, they, they set sail, again leaving women behind and the sick, and they went across and landed at Kalamita Bay, 20 miles north of Sevastopol. Now, this is where the incompetence, the appalling incompetence begins to come into play. I mean, I remember reading stories not that long ago about, about ill-equipped troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, not having the right desert boots, not having the right kind of transport, the right clothing. The same thing happened in the Crimea. Partly, I suppose, because Britain had been at peace and hadn't had a big war since 1815 when they'd finally beaten Napoleon at Waterloo. And, of course, all the equipment was outmoded. They had got rather complacent about needing to go on another military campaign. So they head off for the Crimea, totally ill-equipped with old bell tents, the very cumbersome ones. The men were told when they disembarked at Calamita Bay, oh, leave your winter coats and your blankets behind. You're not going to need them. This is all going to be over very quickly. They took no transport animals with them. So they had to scrummage around when they got there and find bullocks and local peasants to hire. And, of course, the other tragedy en route, a huge, huge number of the cavalry, fine-bred cavalry horses, had already died at sea. They lost a huge number of horses. Now, here is another point at which wrong decisions were made, of course. Instead of pressing on straight on south from Kalamita Bay right down to Sevastopol, while the going was good, Raglan decided, no, we've got to go all the way down to Balaclava and set up a camp from which to besiege Sevastopol. That gave the Russians time to entrench. And what could have been a quick campaign, of course, became a protracted one. Now, the women, just imagine, were trailing along, all on the route march, 
from Kalamita Bay down to Sevastopol. No transport. Very few of them had transport. No proper provisioning, no proper clothes or shoes. Some of them who'd had the foresight to take tin baths with them to do, wanted to work as laundresses, you know, and a bit of money, were seen walking with tin baths on their heads. And so this bedraggled convoy makes its way down to Balaclava and sets up. And of course, by then, winter's setting in and sickness is getting worse and worse. But of course, it's made much worse by the lack of supplies. And then on top of that, we have the three major battles. And there's no time, I'm afraid, for me to describe them, just merely to say, first of all, Alma, 20th September. There's a, a rare illustration of a woman on the battlefield, one of the army wives. Then there was Balaclava, the big set piece, two big set pieces of Balaclava on the 25th of October, which, of course, were the thin red line when the 93rd Highlanders stood their ground heroically, and the Charge of the Light Brigade. And interestingly, there's a lot of revisionist thinking about the Charge of the Light Brigade now. It wasn't the debacle it's been made out to be. It wasn't the waste of effort. In fact, 157 out of those 673 men were killed in action. But far more horses than men were killed, a huge number, 335 horses, and it wasn't a total failure. But, and of course, six VCs were later awarded. So after that, we have Inkerman, again, another heroic, this of all of them was the real soldiers, rank and file battle in thick fog. The news of Inkerman, when it rides back in England, fills the British people with pride, because it was a really heroic, you know, hand-to-hand fighting in the fog. But of course, by then, with no resolution of the conflict, winter's setting in, and they're all bedding down for a long siege of Sevastopol, which began in October 1854. And now comes the horrifying, horrifying Crimean winter, because the first dreadful, devastating thing that happened was on the night of 14th of November, that all the ships were crammed into that little harbour. I've been to Balaclava, there's hardly room, you know, it's a very tiny entrance into the harbour. All the ships that had been arriving with supplies to the army were smashed to matchsticks that night in the hurricane, sunk. Ships full of blankets and food and coats and everything the army, precisely the things the army needed to see through that winter siege were lost. So the army settle in for a long, hard, cold winter, and the accounts are heartbreaking. There is just some of the finest writing I've read, wonderful accounts in the letters and diaries of the suffering, not just of the men, but the women. Now, these women were up, right up there, in the front lines with their men, the men, women who had made it all the way. And of course, a lot of them had done it by fair means and fell, but they were up there in the front lines, absolutely invaluable to the troops. But of course, there wasn't enough supplies for them, let alone the men. So they were all suffering scurvy, hypothermia, frostbite. And the worst of it was the whole of the Crimean Peninsula had very few trees and a, a bit of scrub. That was all gone. There was no firewood. So there they were with green coffee beans they couldn't roast to eat. It was an appalling winter. And during that winter, women were giving birth right up in the front lines. And there's an extraordinary story. I just have to tell you this very quickly because we're in the National Archives. A lot of you, I'm sure, follow Who Do You Think You Are? You may remember, I don't know how many seasons back, Rory Bremner's story 
um, where they discovered that his uh, great-great-grandfather was an army surgeon called Captain John Ogilvie of the 33rd. Well, in my book, when I was doing the research, I discovered this extraordinary story of a lady from that company giving birth in a muddy trench right up in the front lines in January, in the dead of winter, in that snow. And who do they find to come and deliver the baby but Rory Bremner's ancestor? So it was wonderful. Then they got in touch with me. They found the story in my book. But it's just lovely to have a, a very personal link to it. So extraordinary women. And, of course, we can't forget her. Fanny Jubilee, you may well have heard of her. She wrote the most superb account, also a woman's account of the war, although with rather more of an eye to posterity and her own rather grand sense of self. It's very vivid. It's an absolute key resource on the war. But there are times I get very annoyed with Fanny Jubilee because she does talk of herself as being the only lady in the Crimea. Well, what about the army wives, you know? It's as though they're invisible. And the one thing that uh, does get said by some of the officers writing home is they do champion their own women. For example, this woman, Mrs. Rogers. This is a very, very rare photograph by Fenton of a woman in the campaign. Mrs. Rogers at the cookhouse of the 4th Dragoon Guards. Her um, commanding officer said, she was 10 times more deserving of a medal than many of the men in his company. Now, of course, we do have to come to the important thing, which is the nurses, because they are such an integral part of the story. Now, in the sense of nursing, the French again stole a march on the British. You know, they got the cantonniers to Gallipoli first. And why? Because they had their own order of Sœur de la Charité, de Saint-Vincent de Paul, which had been founded in the 17th century. It was a, a philanthropic uh, order of nuns who basically spent their time nursing sick poor. And this order had convents all around Asia Minor. So the minute the French knew they were going out to Crimea, they contacted the nuns at Smyrna, at Constantinople, at Pera. And those nuns were out there, and some of them actually were in the Crimea at the time, nursing. Now, of course, meanwhile, the British are struggling to get their act together. There'd been an enormous outcry in the British press about the sufferings of the wounded with no organized medical care. And finally, a party of nurses went out, 38 British nurses went out to Scutari on the 23rd of October, led by Florence Nightingale. Now, Florence Nightingale, was very, very clear about the kind of women she wanted to take to the Crimea as nurses, or rather not to the Crimea, because as I said, she was really stuck in Scutari barracks for most of the time. The first thing she said when asked to take on this role of lady superintendent was she wanted preferably married women or widows, and they must be at least 24 years old. She didn't want young, inexperienced women. Now, before Nightingale instituted nurses training after the war, of course, there wasn't any real discipline of nurses training. The, the hospital nurses in existence are rather that sort of vivid kind of stereotype of Mrs. Gamp, the gin-swigging Mrs. Gamp from Dickens. So they did have a reputation for drinking and of being tough and argumentative, and they only did very basic nursing. The women who really were the good hands-on nurses were, of course, the nuns. And you can just see one here. In Mother Claire Moore, who was one of the nuns who went out with Florence Nightingale. Now, the nuns were basically 
Catholic nuns, Catholic Irish nuns, and also Anglican Selenites. There was a very good order led by Mother Claire in that picture, a group of women from Bermondsey. They also went. Now, Florence really wanted the nuns and the hospital nurses combined, the nuns to do the real bedside nursing, hospital nurses to empty the slop pails and fill the mattresses and just generally big dog's bodies. But of course, the other thing that happened, this is where I come to the National Archives, is there were, were calls, obviously, for volunteers, and Florence was besieged with applicants. In fact, she by then left for the Crimea, and the people carrying on recruiting for her in England. There are still in existence in the archives here 617 letters from an extraordinary cross-section of women who wrote in begging to be allowed to go nurse in the Crimea. Everything from, you know, the daughters and wives of vicars and generals and uh, headmasters and, you know, middle-class, middle well-educated women. Often, of course, young unmarried women who'd never seen a man's naked body in their life, let alone a body full of maggots and with hideous mutilations and wounds, which is what in fact, these nurses were heading for. So interestingly, just two of the women who got turned down, one was Isabel Arundel, who later became wife of Sir Richard Burton, the explorer. She applied three times and was turned down. And the poet Christina Rossetti was also turned down, though her aunt did get to go um, because she was a maiden aunt who'd done a lot of domiciliary nursing. And then there was the other brigade of women who later went out later in the campaign. And these were really lady scripture readers who went out to help the troops write letters home to read the papers to them. But of course, they went out to read them the Bible. And all the soldiers kept complaining, we don't want the Bible. We want punch and illustrated news. You know, we, we want to be, we don't want to be evangelized by the bedside. So anyway, the women go out. And this is, of course, where they arrived. The, the majority of them went to Scutari Hospital, which was an old Turkish barracks taken over for the use of Florence Nightingale. And this is one of the rather terrifying-looking Irish Catholic nuns, Sister Aloysius Doyle. Now, Florence from the start had lots of problems with the Irish Catholic nuns because they did have a habit of trying to convert the wounded at the bedside. And there was a big clash that there were too many Irish Catholic nuns and not enough Protestant ones. And this is the kind of administrative headache Florence had to deal with. You know, the whole of Scutari, life at Scutari, was one enormous soap opera which she was trying to juggle. And really, in the end, she didn't have very much time at all to do nursing during the war. Most of her time was spent with a desk of papers, fighting the British Commissariat to get the supplies she needed, and fighting to deal with a very peculiar mix of nurses who were all at war with each other. And one of the things I must dispel, one of these, the, the classic myth, of course, about Florence as the Lady of the Lamp, which, of course, had been popularized back home with images of her and the poem. Um, the reason Florence patrolled the two miles of Scutari Hospital every night before she retired was not really to check on the troops. Actually, it was to check that the hospital nurses were not consorting with the soldiers. She was very worried about morality, and, and with, she had reason to get worried about it because there were lots of problems with the, the hospital nurses. They got very 
uh, bolshy, to put it bluntly, when they found out they weren't going to be allowed to do proper nursing. And interestingly, I just want to give you this statistic of 229 women nurses who went out there in 10 groups. 11 died out there. 12 were discharged for incompetence. Florence very quickly sent them back if they weren't good enough. 17 for misconduct. 37 were invalided home. 40 resigned. 92 came home at the end of the armistice, saw the war through. But the thing that amused me was that 18 women were discharged for intoxication. And so much so that Florence had to lock up the, the medicine cupboard with the brandy in it because they were getting at it all the time. I can't not mention the Russian nurses because for me they were absolutely inspirational. They spent that entire war under constant bombardment inside Sevastopol in the most horrifying traumatic conditions, and they were truly heroic. These were a lay order called the Sisters of Mercy, the community of the Holy Cross. Again, they were middle-class women volunteered, but with the difference that they did get some rudimentary training before they left, and they had a very, very powerful advocate. This wonderful man, Nikolai Pirogov, pioneer of the use of ether, which he used at Sevastopol, unlike the poor British troops who didn't get any kind of anesthesia. Now, he passionately believed in women's nursing. He insisted that he had women nurses with him. And he also introduced a very efficient triage system for dealing with the wounded. So, you know, he was an extraordinary man and ensured that more people survived than otherwise would have. And of course, we've got to now talk about Mary Seacole. I'm just briefly to say she became legendary by the time the war was over, there wasn't anyone out on that peninsula who had, didn't know Mrs. Seacole and where Mrs. Seacole's hut was. And they knew if they went there, they'd get a warm welcome and a hot dinner. And if they had the money, and of course a lot of officers went there late and got very boozed up, they could get drunk on champagne. I mean, there was nothing Mary couldn't lay hands on if they wanted it. But of course she became legendary across the Crimea for her doctoring. Now she wasn't a hands-off, you know, she wasn't a medic with a doctor's bag going around. What she did was set up a kind of informal surgery, and every morning any rank-and-file soldiers who wanted to, who had dysentery or diarrhea or the enteric problems that were absolutely felling the troops in the Crimea, they'd go and she would give them medicine and talk to them and freely give of her own uh, services as a kind of doctorish. She could stitch a wound, she could pull out a bullet, she'd done it before, long before the Crimea, and she was much loved by the troops. Now, one final interesting group of women arrived late in the war. Now, as I said, the siege of Sebastopol had started in the previous October. By the spring of 1855, the bombardment was renewed with a vengeance. This was the final push on Sevastopol. And of course, all the major battles were over. What happens? You get war tourists. It's an astonishing thing to think, but actually, for five pounds, you could get a steamship tour to Constantinople and the Crimea. So women start turning up in their crinolines and bringing their picnic baskets and their opera glasses and being taken for tours up at Cathcart's Hill, which was the vantage point from where the officers watched the siege lines and literally could stand there seeing men being blown up. 
I mean, it was astonishing. The officers hated the lady tourists. They were called female amateurs, by the way. You know, what a morbid taste for horrors they displayed, wanting to see this happen. But extraordinarily, that summer, the Crimea had its own little English social world. There were cricket matches, there were balls, amateur theatricals, they even had horse racing. It was like a little gentleman's country club while they were waiting to finish off the Russians. And so all these lady tourists arrived and visited. Back home, oh, there's Mrs. Hancock. Mrs. Hancock visiting her husband, getting a grand tour of the battlements. About three days later, he was killed, sadly. But back home, the Queen was really doing her bit for the war effort. And I so admire Victoria. She was passionate about following the campaign. She read all the dispatches. She knew the maps inside out. She went right from February 1855 when the wounded started coming back to Fort Pitt in Chatham. She went with Albert and her older children, visited the wounded. But beyond that, she took a very passionate interest in them. She commissioned photographers to take photographs of some of the much more seriously wounded. She asked for details of their wounds, their treatment, their recovery, their rehabilitation. Were they found jobs? Did they have enough money? Were their families okay? Took a passionate care for the wounded. And also out of her own money, she sent the most extraordinary consignments of goods. She sent newspapers and books and Windsor soap and soda water and Cavendish tobacco and mock turtle soup. And even in August 1855, sent a shipload of ice to the Crimea. She and her daughters also knitted like crazy. The whole of Christmas 1854, she even wrote in her journal, Christmas Day 1854, she and her girls were knitting balaclava helmets and mufflers and um, mittens. They sewed slings. They made handkerchiefs. They made a whole variety of things. Now, this is a hilarious story. I have to tell you, when I was at the Royal Archives at Windsor, they are these beautiful copper plate lists that were copied out for Queen Victoria. She liked to know who got her presents. So there'd be two Sergeant Smith, one pair of mittens, two Captain so-and-so, a handkerchief. And that this list comes back with, unfortunately, the gift of a handkerchief to a man who'd had both arms blown off. <laughs> but he sent her a thank you letter. So there was a huge amount of campaigning. Also, the Queen's daughter, Vicky, Princess Royal, did this beautiful painting which was auctioned to raise money for the troops. And finally, finally, of course, the armistice does come. 1st of February, 1856, and the army, this poor, tattered, bedraggled, exhausted army start coming back. This is a very famous painting, Joseph Noel Payton called Home. Now, just a quick statistic before I finish. 21,182 men died in the war. Of that, only 4,600 actually were killed or died of wounds. 17,500 died of disease, mismanaged care, unnecessarily starvation during that terrible winter. It was a catastrophe, you know, complete waste of life. But even worse than that is we have no statistics for those women who followed the army and effectively during the campaign helped unofficially as nurses in the front lines. We have no statistics for how many women died. It must definitely be in the hundreds. 
But none of the memorials, you look at all the Crimean War memorials and, of course, the medal-giving, Queen Victoria handing out medals in Hyde Park, 1857, 275,000 medals given out to men who served in the war. And I've been, again, I did a lot of research in the, the military documents to do with the award of medals, trying to find evidence of the medals given to Mary Seacole, because she did wear medals and you've seen them. But there is, I I'm absolutely convinced she was given them unofficially by that door because no women were given medals. Even Florence Nightingale didn't receive a medal and refused all awards. But this is the extraordinary thing. Florence and Nightingale, the two women now who really represent the war, I suppose, certainly for our children in school, because they're all doing Mary Seacole on Key Stage 2. Florence comes back, you know, lumbered with the Lady of the Lamp image, which she despised. She hated being called that. She goes back to Harley Street, her house in Harley Street, locks the door, has a massive nervous breakdown, spends the next, I don't know, 50 years of her life in valetudinarian, writing thousands of letters, finally accepts the OM in 1908, two years before she died. Now, Mary Seacole is extraordinary because she comes back, oh, here's the Crimean War Memorial with famously Florence depicted. And, you know, by the time of her death, she is the iconic figure in British nursing. Mary Seacole comes back. Now, the best illusion I can draw, comparison with, with the return of this extraordinary black woman from the Crimea is when Kelly Holmes came back with two gold medals from the Greek Olympics because the accolades, the attention, the coverage in the press was absolutely extraordinary. She was fated and celebrated. She was a national heroine, but it was a fame that died very quickly because the rank and file who knew her story as they died, the story didn't really get passed down, although some of the officers had mentioned her. And then she got forgotten. And it was only finally in the 70s that her grave at Kensal Green was rediscovered and restored by a group of Jamaican nurses who knew she had died in London. So finally, you know, Mary has taken her place. I don't like to talk of her as the black Florence Nightingale. She wasn't. She and Florence Nightingale were very different women who achieved very different things in the Crimea. But it's a wonderful story that I find inspiring uh, in many, many ways. I just wish we had more documentary evidence of the women, the ordinary army wives who died and suffered in the Crimea. And there were many. And finally, I just want to put in a plug for the newly revamped Florence Nightingale Museum, which is superb. They were very generously given a grant of a million pounds by the Wellcome Trust, completely revamped, and it's a lovely little exhibition. If you go there, there are modules on Florence. There's also one on the Crimea, and I think I'm on the loop there talking about Mary Seacole, or I used to be. So I would urge you, if you are interested in the war, do please go and take a look at the Florence Nightingale Museum. It's just at the back of St. Thomas's Hospital, just opposite Parliament. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 8th of September, 2011, at the National Archives Queue.